Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode two of Will's Words. My name is Abby Dufresne. And I'm Kirsten Mulrennan. We are so excited to have you back for our second episode, where we will be talking about the Dark Lady sonnets and what we can pull from those about Shakespeare's relationship with women. If you're new here, we spent the first episode chatting about the first 126 of Shakespeare's sonnets, which are referred to as the Fair Youth Sonnets, as they follow the narrative of the sonneteer, whether or not this is William Shakespeare and these sonnets are autobiographical is up for debate, and we talk about that in the first episode. Um, But we follow the narrator and his relationship to a lover who's referred to as the Fair Youth again, We don't know exactly who the fair youth is. This is a boy of mysterious identity. And if you're curious about that, I recommend going back and giving it a listen. In today's second episode, we're going to be talking about the last 27 sonnets, which are referred to as the Dark Lady Sonnets. Before we begin, for those of you who are joining us for the first time or who missed the last episode or who might just need a refresher, Abby, will you talk a little bit again about what exactly a sonnet is and why it is we're talking about them? Yeah, definitely. So a sonnet is a 14-line poem in iambic pentameter, which means that each line has 10 syllables, five of those are stressed and five are unstressed. And the rhyming scheme is A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. E-F-E-F-G-G. So this is the standard structure of the sonnets, but as we talked about last episode and as we saw examples of, Shakespeare does break this structure. But I don't actually know, I don't think we have any of that in tonight's episode. Anyways, these sonnets specifically, Shakespeare's sonnets, are especially interesting in that, as we talked about last episode, the first 126 are written for a man, Also, they're compelling because we don't know that Shakespeare ever intended for these poems to be published. They can be read as very personal and even autobiographical. Whether or not they actually are autobiographical is up for debate. Again, we talked about it last episode. But either way, they are definitely very personal and we don't know that they were intended to be shared. They were published by a man named Thomas Thorpe while Shakespeare was still alive, but he does not seem to have anything to do with the publishing. As we'll get into tonight, it's possible there are theories that these were actually perhaps published as revenge against William Shakespeare because of who he was sleeping with and some drama with the married woman. We'll get into that later, but these are particularly compelling poems because we don't know that they were ever intended to be shared the way his plays always were intended to be shared. So on that note... Let's get right into it. Kirsten, do you want to kick it off? Absolutely. So as Abby was just saying, these are very intimate poems. And these last 27 get, I would say, straight up saucy, if not scandalous. And (laughs) um, what we're talking about here is the Dark Lady sonnets. And a new character is introduced into the narrative in the Dark Lady The narrator and the fair youth stay the same. These are the same characters from the first 126 sonnets. So the new woman that we're going to be hearing about that's introduced is referred to as the Dark Lady, who I could give an introduction of my own words if I wanted to, but I really feel like Shakespeare's words speak for themselves. So let's go ahead and hear how she's introduced to us. This is going to be the first of the Dark Lady sonnets. Sonnet 127, read by Jess Tresnadel. In the old age black was not counted fair, or, if it were, it bore not beauty's name. But now is black beauty's successive heir, and beauty slandered with a bastard shame. 
For since each hand hath put on nature's part, Faring the fowl with art's false borrowed face, Sweet beauty hath no name, no holy bower, But is profaned, if not lives in disgrace. Therefore my mistress' eyes are raven black, Her eyes so suited, and they mourners seem, At such who, not born fair, no beauty lack, Slandering creation with a false esteem, Yet so they mourn, becoming of their woe, That every tongue says beauty should look so. Thank you, Jess, for that reading. So after this rather unflattering introduction as to this new character, this dark lady, it's worth talking about who might she be, especially if we're going to talk about these sonnets as if they might be autobiographical, then just like the fair youth may have been a real man in Shakespeare's life, so might the dark lady have been a real woman that he knew. But much like the fair youth, we don't really know who she is. My uh, complete works, I have the complete Pelican Shakespeare, and in their note as to the Dark Lady, I really loved this quote. They said, The number of possible candidates is as large as the number of brunettes in Elizabethan London. <laughs> Which you can imagine is a, a wide net to cast for who this woman might be. But there are some guesses. I mean, I came across at least eight names in my research. But uh, there are a couple specific ones that I found particularly interesting, particularly compelling that I do want to talk about today. Um, Abby, you did mention that perhaps these sonnets were published as an act of revenge. And why might they be published as an act of revenge? Well, because the Dark Lady may have been a woman involved in an affair with Shakespeare who was married to the friend of the publisher of these sonnets. This idea is explored in a 2013 article from The Guardian, um, and this article talks about that she might be John Florio's wife. So we, as we were saying, we talked last time about the possibility that these poems may have been published without Shakespeare's permission by Thomas Thorpe. John Florio, who was a scholar and translator close to many important texts of the time, um, he translated several well-known works from Italian into English, did those first translations, as well as he translated and published the first Italian-English dictionary. And he was a close friend of Thomas Thorpe's who may have encouraged him to publish the sonnets as an act of revenge against Shakespeare for having an affair with his wife. So I don't know how much there is behind that. Um, there is proof that if you look at the dedication and the kind of language used, you can find language that was unique to Florio in his own writings. So there are connections that can be made. I would really recommend checking that article out if you're interested. Um, we will give full credits at the end of the episode. But I'm really interested in that idea. I think it's actually quite funny that this woman, this dark lady, could have been John Florio's wife having an affair with Shakespeare. And um, much like Regina George with the burn book, John Florio came in <laughs> and said, I'm releasing these most intimate secrets into the public forever. Um, I just, I find that funny. Um, another article published in The Independent in 2012 by Dahlia Alberge supports the idea that the Dark Lady may have been a London prostitute, a woman called Black Luce from Clerkenwell. She would have been connected to the world of London theater through a man named Philip Henslow, who owned the Rose Theater, which uh, was contemporary and a direct competitor to Shakespeare's Globe Theater, where all of Shakespeare's plays were originally performed. 
Uh, Shakespeare himself also had connections to Clerkenwell via his associates, his colleagues, and also possibly family. So it's not unlikely that this notorious prostitute slash brothel owner, Black Luce, would have been known to Shakespeare. And in the same vein, the idea of her being a prostitute aligns with Shakespeare's painting of this woman as evil, as a temptress, a dishonest woman. All these qualities, which at the time would have been considered to be quote-unquote dark, which is to say not necessarily dark physically, but morally dark or sinful. And I think that takes us to the next thing that we wanted to touch on, which is why the dark lady? Why is she considered dark? What does this mean? Well, Jeffrey R. Wilson, who's a professor over at Harvard, talks about how there is an ongoing critical conversation about the dark lady's blackness. What is it? We do not know the exact nature of her blackness, whether she is a, this is a quote, pale-skinned, raven-haired, gothic Caucasian, an olive-skinned, brown-haired, continental European, or a brown-skinned, black-haired African or West Indian. He goes on to say, what is important is that we recognize that Shakespeare's sonneteer begins with the assumption that blackness is a mark of inferiority, that discredits whoever bears it, that the sonneteer makes this assumption because he comes from a culture which exhibits an aesthetic of, and I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation of this as it is a long Greek word, but I do believe it's halokagathia, which is the beautiful in the good, which is a binary, polarized, and oppositional aesthetic. So if we're talking about an aesthetic of the beautiful in the good, then what is good? And at this time for a woman, good is moral purity. And we see this reflected in the fashion choices of the time too. It was very common for high-class women to physically paint their face white. It was ironically often with lead paint that would then cause them incredible boils and was very dangerous. But they would do this and this was in order to look fair or pale. First off, because it was connected with purity, but it was also connected with upper class. Because if a person was able to remain pale, it meant that they didn't have to be working outside and they weren't in the sun, so they were wealthy or they were upper class. Mm -hmm. And going back to my Pelican Shakespeare, when we have a note for the word black as it comes up in these dark lady sonnets, it's defined as foul, immoral, even stating in the notes of Sonnet 147 that quote, the primary senses are moral, not visual, end quote. And granted, what that says about the sexually promiscuous William Shakespeare and his view of and double standard for women is a whole other thing, but we'll get into that later. Uh, The takeaway here is that when we're talking about this dark lady, we're talking about a, a moral failing in her, that she is seen as evil, sinful, dark in that way. To say that that does not tell us something about the way they viewed people of African descent or people with darker skin would be ignorant. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it was informed. But we do know that the using the word black is not necessarily referring to race in Shakespeare because in the few black characters that there are in Shakespeare's plays, most famously Othello, they aren't referred to as black people. They're referred to as Moors. So that's one of the other reasons we know that this is not necessarily speaking about the Dark Lady's race. It's more speaking about her moral, well, Shakespeare's view of her morality. And this also goes into 
something that um, we learned about from one of our really wonderful teachers. His name is Dennis Krosnick, and he taught us about this idea of the quote Elizabethan world picture and that there were certain views that the people in the Elizabethan period held that really colored the way they viewed everything in the world around them. And this view of the world was, for lack of a better term, black and white. They saw things very much so in the binary. Things were either sins or they were virtues. There was heaven and there was hell, and those were very literal places that they would be going. So using the word black as a descriptor was very much so in line with this binary black and white world that the Elizabethan world picture oftentimes led to. So now moving on from this very first Dark Lady sonnet, we go on to sonnet 130. This one is fun in some ways, I think, because we start to see comedy come up in the poems a bit, which isn't really something we've seen until now. Now, whether or not it is actually intended to be comedic or if it's intended to be cruel is up for debate, and it's similar perhaps to some of the texts that we see come up in his play Taming of the Shrew that also has a lot to say about women in a very negative way. And we can see this kind of line of comedy versus cruelty walked in that as well. So reading Sonnet 130, we have Cassidy McCartan. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why, then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak. Yet, well, I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven... I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Thank you, Cassidy. Abby, I'm glad you brought up that comedy might be being introduced here because I listened to that and I think that's funny. But looking at the words on the page, I just think it's so mean and so cruel. But hearing it brought to life by Cassidy, I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty funny. So I don't know. I don't know what it is. But as we move through these, it does occur to me that perhaps we should bring up that, uh, did you know that Shakespeare did have a wife? We're talking about, we spent 126 sonnets talking about Shakespeare's relationship to the fair youth. Now we're introducing another lover into the picture. But Shakespeare did actually have a wife, a woman by the name of Anne Hathaway. Uh, when Shakespeare was 18, and Anne Hathaway was 26. She became pregnant with their daughter, Susanna, who was born shortly after their wedding. So I guess you could say that was a bit of a, a shotgun wedding for William Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway. And I think that's something we think of a lot of the time is that at the time, people were getting married super young, that teenagers were getting married and I think that in noble families, that was true because marriages were political moves and you knew who you were going to marry your child to 
uh, for the sake of advancing your family. But for regular old people like William Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway, you got married a little bit older. So Anne Hathaway at 26 would have been of a more typical marrying age than Shakespeare at 18. The reason for that is that men most commonly would do apprenticeships and um, it wasn't until they were in their young to mid-20s that they would finish those apprenticeships and be ready to get married and start a family that they could support. So Shakespeare is actually quite young to get married and be a father at this point. But he is because Anne Hathaway was pregnant and they had their daughter Susanna. A couple of years later, Anne Hathaway gave birth to twins, Hamnet and Judith, which are their only other children. Shakespeare was hardly a family man. Anne and their children lived in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is Shakespeare's birthplace. That's where uh, his family was from. That's where he was born, where he grew up. But Shakespeare himself lived and worked in London, writing, producing, and sometimes acting in these plays. As a result, he hardly ever saw his family who lived in Stratford. And during this time, we know him to have been unfaithful to Anne Hathaway, to have been sexually promiscuous. But at the same time, he was doing good by his family because the reason he was apart from them and living in London in the first place was that was where he could work. That was where he was able to make a living for his family and provide for them. So it's a complicated relationship. Uh, There's not a ton of evidence either way, whether he loved Anne Hathaway, whether he did not care for her and only married her because of the pregnancy of their first daughter. We don't really know. There's not a ton of evidence, but I did just want to take a moment to cover the nature of their relationship, as I think it's interesting to think about as we go on listening to these poems about the narrator, who may or may not have been Shakespeare himself, and these trysts and this uh, bit of a love triangle with this fair youth and dark lady. So as we progress to these sonnets, let's take a listen to sonnet 134, this time read by Amanda Houchins. So now I have confessed that he is thine, and I myself am mortgaged to thy will. Myself I'll forfeit, so that other mine thou wilt restore to be my comfort still. But thou wilt not, nor he will not be free, for thou art covetous, and he is kind. He learned but surety like to write for me, under that bond that him as fast doth bind. A statue of thy beauty thou wilt take, thou usurer that puttst forth all to use, and sue a friend came debtor for my sake. So him I lose through my unkind abuse. Him have I lost. Thou hast both him and me. He pays the whole. And yet, am I not free? Thank you so much, Amanda. So as you can see, in this one, we find the fair youth returning and coming back into play. And it seems like both the fair youth and Shakespeare himself are having a relationship with this dark lady. And this distresses Shakespeare very much. Or the narrator, I should say. We don't know. That's probably Shakespeare. Anyways. Um, <laughs> if we are choosing to look at this as an autobiographical narrative, then it seems to distress Shakespeare very much. Especially we see, so now I have confessed that he is thine. 
it almost seems like Shakespeare has even lost the fair youth to the dark lady. Well, actually, yes, in the, the next quote I pulled, him have I lost, thou hast us both. Wow. So it seems like by this dark lady taking, in in the narrator's eyes, taking the fair youth because um, he is thine, that if she has him, then she also has Shakespeare under her thumb. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a poignant line to me. Yeah, it's it's... It's interesting to consider that even though in society, women did not have much power politically, religiously, even in their home lives. And yet this woman, the Dark Lady, seems to have tremendous power over Shakespeare and the fair youth. But I do think it's also worth noting that one of the only powers that women have had historically and in this time is their sexuality. Yeah. That is the thing that women have been able to hold over men absolutely and we see that which i'll get into more later but the role that queen elizabeth played in society part of the Mm. reason she had power at all was because she refused sex for men she was considered the virgin queen and it was because of that that people respected her oh crazy stuff yeah but we will keep going we're gonna do sonnet 141 read by anna langman In faith I do not love thee with mine eyes, for they in thee a thousand errors note, but tis my heart that loves what they despise, who in despite of you is pleased to dote. Nor are mine ears with thy tongue's tune delighted, nor tender feelings to base touches prone, nor taste nor smell desire to be invited to any central feast with thee alone. But my five wits nor my five senses can dissuade one foolish heart from serving thee, who leaves unswayed the likeness of a man, thy proud heart's slave and vassal wretch to be. Only my plague thus far I count my gain, that she that makes me sin awards me pain. Thank you, Anna. I really like the language of this poem. It actually reminds me of this quote by that Harvard professor that I was referencing earlier, uh, Jeffrey R. Wilson. He wrote that in Shakespeare's sonnets, love makes the beloved beautiful, our hearts telling our eyes what to see, and love lost makes the unloved ugly. So based on this quote, let me see if I got this right. The writer feels that this lady is beautiful because he loves her even though he thinks objectively that she is ugly. But he himself feels that he is ugly because he is unloved by the fair youth, but maybe also the dark lady. Is that right? Right. But also, I mean, if we go back to the idea that perhaps this woman was a prostitute, Mm. when we say objectively she is ugly, we're talking about in the eyes of society. She is the unlovable one. She is ugly. But perhaps he loves her and therefore sees the beauty in her. And it's uh, those two things pulling and fighting against one another where we get this polarizing language of she is beautiful, she is ugly, I am ugly, I'm unloved. I think that's why I like the language of the poem so much is there's a lot at play there and a lot of seemingly contrasting forces. Me too, yeah. It's so, so different compared to the Fair Youth sonnets. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Oh, I love it. Okay. I know. Let's keep going. (laughs) Let's listen to more of it. Um, Next, we have Sonnet 144, which will be read by Connor Finnegan. 
Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which, like two spirits, do suggest me still. The better angel is a man, right, fair, the worser spirit a woman colored ill. To win me soon to hell, my female evil tempteth my better angel from my side, and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride. And whether that my angel be turned fiend, suspect I may, yet not directly tell, but being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know, but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. Thank you so much, Connor. Wow, this one is one of my favorites, I think. It's so telling, I think, his view of men versus women, that a man who he's having relationship with is an angel <laughs> and is pure, and yet a woman for doing presumably the same things is evil, is bad, is impure. So he refers to her as the bad angel, which of course we know a bad angel is probably a fallen angel, which is a devil. <laughs> So this connects to the idea that purity for a woman is the standard. And if a woman is not pure, which means chaste except for within marriage, then she is the devil, even though Shakespeare himself is very much so married, as we spoke about, and yet is doing the same thing she is, and yet she is the devil for doing it. Right. It's pretty astounding when you look at it that way. I mean, it, it is a direct comparison of the fair youth to the dark lady. I mean, let's take a look at some of the language in this. The two loves I have of comfort and despair. Well, comfort is obviously the fair youth and despair is obviously the dark lady. Again, the better angel is a man, right fair. The worser spirit, a woman, colored ill. This is a direct contrast and it happens in almost every couplet in this sonnet. The idea of the angelic pure fair youth being led astray by the female evil temptress who is quite frankly as the narrator is here putting it trying to bring them to hell which right. is a pretty bold claim yeah it's also interestingly a similar image to that of eve right eve was tempted and then tempted adam and brought them out of paradise oh my god you're so right right but <laughs> it's just like that <laughs> but adam ate the apple also mm -hmm. shakespeare was adulterous also right but much like adam suggested that he only ate the apple because eve did mm -hmm. shakespeare is suggesting that he is only being brought to evil because of this woman right Right. And nothing of his own doing and right. his own sins, <laughs> many of which are prevalent in the language of all of these sonnets. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I shouldn't say sins. I should say wrongdoings. Sins is subjective to the Christian faith. Mm. So what we're looking at here is the insane difference in which Shakespeare views or the narrator views his fair youth and his dark lady in the insanely different standards that he holds each of them to. And I want to go back again 
to the idea that the Dark Lady might have been a prostitute. Again, as we're talking about evil and immorality, we know that over the course of history, prostitutes were among the lowliest in society's eyes. And Mm -hmm. at the time, syphilis was highly prevalent especially in brothels and if we're thinking that this this prostitute may have been that woman black loose who owned a brothel of her own like this seedy part of london would have seen a lot of this so that kind of starts to creep into the language of the sonnets so that's what i want us to listen for as we hear the next sonnet which is going to be sonnet 147 read by nina carbone My love is as a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease, feeding on that which doth preserve the ill, the uncertain sickly appetite to please. My reason, the physician to my love, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me, and I desperate now approve, desire is death which physic did accept. Past cure I am, now reason is past care, and frantic mad with evermore unrest, my thoughts and my discourse as madmen's are, at random from the truth vainly expressed. For I have sworn thee fair, and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. Thank you so much, Nina. That was beautiful. So as we can see, the language of this sonnet in particular is very much so what you were speaking about, Kirsten. Speaking to disease, to illness. He talks about having a fever, having a sickly appetite. He speaks about going to a physician and having prescriptions and even madness caused by this disease. So if we look at the symptoms of syphilis specifically... The Google search I did says that it can include a fever, swollen lymph nodes, sore throat, hair loss, headaches, weight loss, muscle aches, and fatigue. And a lot of these symptoms seem to sort of line up with what he's describing here. He talks about having a fever, not having an appetite, which goes to weight loss, and um, having to get prescriptions for these different illnesses. And then When he's speaking about madness, this can maybe be connected with having a fever, which can feel like you're mad. So this speaks to how he's not just writing to a general distaste of this woman, but also a physical illness that he may have even contracted from her. Which, as Kirsten said, leads to the belief that perhaps this woman was a prostitute or within an environment where we know syphilis was rampant at the time. But like Kirsten said before, we may never know who this woman was. This is just one theory. Right. It's all speculation. And we can Mm -hmm. speculate. I mean, we've been speculating for 400 years. We could speculate for 400 more. And (laughs) we're not going to get any closer to any actual answers. Mm -hmm. These are just pieces of evidence we kind of find along the way and can bend to the idea of what we want it to be, really. Absolutely. Um, So, I mean... for you listeners, we encourage you to do your own research and see what's out there. Maybe you'll find a theory that you really like and maybe the one that's more convincing. You never know. It's really interesting to 
dive into these kinds of things and make your own guesses and create your own image of what these poems might actually be about. I don't know. I think that's really cool. And on that, let's go on to the final Dark Lady sonnet. It's sonnet 152, which will be read by Mira Lampson Klein. In loving thee, thou know'st I am forsworn, but thou art twice forsworn to love me swearing. In act thy bedvow broke and new faith torn, in vowing new hate after new love bearing. But why of two oaths breached do I accuse thee when I break twenty? I am perjured most, for all my vows are oaths but to misuse thee. And all my honest faith in thee is lost, for I have sworn deep oaths of thy deep kindness, oaths of thy love, thy truth, thy constancy, and to enlighten thee gave eyes to blindness, or made them swear against the thing they see, for I have sworn thee fair. More perjured I to swear against the truth so foul a lie. Thank you, Mira. That was great. And really also gives us a lot to think about. There is definitely a tone shift in this poem. After 25 poems trashing this woman, the narrator finally admits some culpability. Oh, there's some specific language that I want to look at, which is in the first line, In loving thee thou knowst I am forsworn. For sworn meaning untrue, unfaithful. If this is Shakespeare, if this is autobiographical, then by saying that in loving thee thou knowst I am forsworn, he's referring there to his marriage to Anne Hathaway. He's being unfaithful to her, to his wife. This last Dark Lady sonnet is also including language that this woman's love, her truth, her constancy enlighten her is the word that Shakespeare uses makes her her love her truth her constancy make her bright make her fair suggesting that maybe she is not so dark after all and you have to wonder if this is how he leaves it here as the last sonnet addressing this subject how much of this is the truth is the dark lady the one that's dishonest or is Shakespeare the one that's being dishonest can we take any of this portrait he has painted of this woman as real? I mean, I'd like to think not because it's quite frankly defamatory and quite degrading. I don't want to believe these words about this woman, but it's definitely food for thought. I'm not quite sure what I believe. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think this final sonnet, final Dark Lady sonnet, does sort of pull the rug out from everything else he's been saying about her. Mm-hmm. It says, well, maybe, right. maybe I was, like, upset. <laughs> I think he might have been doing a little bit of projecting on this poor woman. <laughs> I was feeling angry about you taking the fair youth from me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was wrong to have said such awful things about you. Maybe you're not so bad. And I just had a broken heart. <laughs> I mean, even here, the narrator says... I am perjured most for all my vows are oaths but to misuse thee. I don't know if you can hear the gears grinding in my brain from where you're sitting, but they're going. <laughs> it's what I love about these poems, that there's always more to discover, always more to dig into and theorize about and talk about. It's what makes them so fun. 
Right, because you and I have done our research. Mm -hmm. We have looked into these poems. We have spent the time. And just now, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, hmm, well, maybe. (laughs) And having all these new thoughts. Mm -hmm. And And that part of it, too, is, and thanks again, Mira, for your reading, when you hear it brought to life by someone new, mm-hmm. their own experience is brought to it. Their own voice, their world is brought to the words, and it can make them sound totally different. And that's, I think, what's so beautiful and timeless about Shakespeare's language. I think it has always been that way for these words and always will be that way. So, I don't know, just it just goes to show we have something really special here in these sonnets. Yeah, Absolutely. So with that, we have gotten through all of the Dark Lady sonnets, but there are actually two more sonnets, sonnets 153 and 154, that are tacked on to the end here. They're considered their own entities, not included in this Fair Youth Dark Lady narrative. So let's listen to one of those. This will be the very last sonnet, and then Abby will explain a little bit about why these two are considered to stand alone. So here is Sonnet 154, read by Annabel Milton. The little love god lying once asleep laid by his side his heart-inflaming brand, whilst many nymphs that vowed chaste life to keep came tripping by, but in her maiden hand the fairest votary took up that fire, which many legions of true hearts had warmed, and so the general of hot desire was sleeping by a virgin hand disarmed. This brand she quenched in a cool well by, which from love's fire took heat perpetual, growing a bath and healthful remedy for men diseased. But I, my mistress' thrall, came there for cure, and this by that I prove. Love's fire heats water. Water cools not love. Thank you so much, Annabelle. These final two sonnets, sonnet 153 and 154, are considered the Greek sonnets, and they are considered separate, although sometimes lumped in with the Dark Lady sonnets. But if we speak of them separately, it's usually because they are both referring to the Greek myth of Cupid, and they seem to address love in a more broad sense than the previous 154. And I think it's interesting that he chooses to end it this way. Whereas every other sonnet is referring to either one person or two people at the same time. At the very end, he chooses to take a more mythical, maybe historical view of love, which I think is kind of fun. It it does sort of wrap it up as if it is supposed to be a narrative. We don't know that he ever intended for it to be a narrative for people to consume, but I like that it's ended with this sort of mythical imagery in the way that we can now look back on this story as if it is a narrative the same way he might have been looking back at the stories of Cupid. I think it's interesting too that you're asking the question, why would he choose to end the sonnets this way? And that's making me ask the question, is that further proof that Shakespeare was not involved in the publishing of these sonnets and that the publishers just tacked them on at the end there because they were uninvolved in the narrative and they just had these sonnets here at the end and they didn't fit anywhere else so they put them in just slipped them in there at the end i don't know i mean yeah it also it also begs the question of are there more sonnets that we just don't know about (laughs) that 
he wrote, but were never in the hands of the publisher. Right. And we, we might never know that. I mean, some of these sonnets have alternate drafts that we know yeah. about. So who's to say that there are not other sonnets, drafts of sonnets, finished sonnets, who knows, sitting around mm -hmm. that, you're right, the publishers just did not include. Yeah. So kind of shifting a bit, let's take a look at what these poems specifically can tell us about Shakespeare's relationship to women. Something that I think it's important to note is that these poems were written in a certain period of time. We don't know exactly what that period of time was, but he did not write these across his whole lifetime, and so we cannot say that this is how he felt about women during his entire lifetime. But speaking to how he seems to feel about women in this specific time, it's important to understand culturally what was happening. At the time, Queen Elizabeth was in power, and she came to power during a time of political and also religious unrest. And there were challenges to the legitimacy of her claim to the throne. A man named Thomas Knox published a piece entitled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, which claims that female rulers are mad and against nature. That's a big yikes. I know, big yikes. Also, a hilarious title. I love, <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> it's so funny. Again, comedy or cruelty? Who's to say? <laughs> fine line, fine line. But Queen Elizabeth did become queen, and she ruled objectively very well. She led the country into a period of peace and prosperity. And part of the reason she did this, which this is maybe in hindsight a bit unfortunate that she had to do this. She had to reject femininity in many ways. One of the ways she did so was in claiming a belief in a monarch's, quote, two bodies in order to embrace the masculinity that her father, King Henry the... Eighth. Eighth. <laughs> the masculinity that her father, King Henry the Eighth, had ruled with. This idea of a monarch having multiple, quote, bodies is a concept refers to a monarch being God's divine representation on earth. This is the first body. The second body is what's called the body politic, which is the belief that a monarch's passed down the right to the throne that is, quote, housed within the individual body of each rightful heir. So Elizabeth claimed that this second body in which was housed the right to the throne was male. She said that this body was a man and she rejected many of the traditionally feminine attributes. And you can see this in a lot of her clothing choices. We know that, especially younger in her time as queen, she tended to wear clothing that looked a lot like the masculine clothes her father would wear. So despite a lot of challenges to her claim, as I said, Elizabeth went on to be a very effective leader. But we also know that one of the reasons that she was respected was that she was viewed as the virgin queen. She remained unmarried her whole life, and whether or not she was actually a virgin is unclear, but she definitely did use this image of her to her political advantage. We also know that she was a patron of Shakespeare's, and it's believed that some of his female heroines, specifically Portia in The Merchant of Venice, Olivia in Twelfth Night, and Rosalind in As You Like It, it is believed that these women may be actually modeled after Queen Elizabeth. They are both pure and incredibly intelligent and well-educated. This seems to be sort of the standard that his heroines are held to. If they are pure and intelligent, then they have status and they're respected. And if they're not, 
intelligent or at least educated, if they are at least pure, they're good. <laughs> so we see this in Perdita in The Winter's Tale and also Miranda in The Tempest. Not to say that they aren't intelligent characters, but they're maybe less educated than some of the other ones. So I think contextualizing the view of women in society in this time, it's important to acknowledge that despite Queen Elizabeth's power, her intelligence, and her aptitude for leading, she still needed to be perceived as a virgin in order to be respected as a monarch. So this goes to, if you're not queen, <laughs> what was a woman's role in society? Women were considered property of their closest male relative. We see this come up in Shakespeare's plays such as Much Ado About Nothing or A Midsummer Night's Dream, where it's often the male figure trying to marry off their child, their daughter specifically. And once a woman was married, then she became property of her husband. And the only other option would be for a woman to become a nun, in which case she would be the property of the church. So this may be one of the reasons why women tend to play larger roles in Shakespeare's comedies. And this is usually because the comedies are oftentimes centered around people getting married or people getting engaged. So a woman before marriage did have more agency than a married woman. And so that's why I think these comedies tend to have women in larger roles and tend to push the plot more because they're often about getting married. And then as we see in some of the histories and the tragedies, there are far less women and their roles drive the plot much less. With the great exception, I feel like I have to mention of Juliet and Romeo and Juliet, who absolutely has yeah. a remarkable amount of agency and is really calling the shots in that relationship in a way that's beautiful and powerful, especially for a woman who's so young. And she's, I think, objectively the much smarter person in that relationship. I would agree. She's incredible. And we're here just touching on Shakespeare's relationship to women and their agency and their power in the plays where really we could track the way that Shakespeare writes these female characters and see his feelings about women as they progress through his life because that is a, a shift you can see in the plays um, especially as later in his life he goes on to write deep layered and, and nuanced female characters but that being said, there's so much to get into there. And we could honestly spend a whole episode on it. And maybe that's someday that we'll do. I think that I would be really interested in doing research on that and talking about it one day. I think that that would be something that I'd be interested in. Uh, hopefully yeah, me too. that you all listening would also have an interest in that. Maybe we'll be seeing that sometime soon. On that, if anyone's interested in exploring that further, and I think it will be a big source for us if we do that episode that mm -hmm. you're talking about, is um, Tina Packer's book, Women of Will, where she basically does exactly that, kind of tracks through the plays and sees how Shakespeare's relationship to women seems to shift. So highly recommend that book. I'm reading it right now. It's incredible. And on that note, it sounds like you have research to do, I have research to do, we all have research to mm -hmm. do, but we also <laughs> did do our research in preparation for tonight's episode. So I just want to quickly mention the sources that I used to gather my information. I looked at the Shakespeare Resource Center. I specifically looked at Mrs. Shakespeare and Hathaway by J.M. Presley. 
Also, in my research in Shakespeare's relationship to his wife, Anne Hathaway, I looked to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and their Let's Talk Shakespeare podcast. In exploring the identity of the Dark Lady, I looked to an article titled, New Evidence Supports Claim That William Shakespeare's Dark Lady May Have Been a Clerkenwell Prostitute, that was written by Dahlia Alberge and published by The Independent. I also looked at an article entitled In Search of Shakespeare's Dark Lady that was written by Saul Frampton and published in The Guardian. And I did also reference the writing and research of Professor Jeffrey R. Wilson of Harvard University. Thank you, and I would also like to share some of my references. First off, I read an article by Sylvia Morris, which is called Shakespeare's Dark Lady of the Sonnets, Fact or Fiction. There was also an article for BBC called Shakespeare's Evolving Attitude Towards Women by Jane O'Brien. Next is To Be a Woman, Shakespeare's Patriarchal Viewpoint by Conley Greer. And Shakespeare's Attitude Towards Women by Rosie Bell. Another one that I found helpful was Shakespeare and Gender, The Woman's Part by Claire McNamis, which was for the British Library. And Women in the Age of Shakespeare by Teresa Kemp. I think that's all mine. Oh, and also, as I mentioned before, Women of Will, I'm currently reading it, so <laughs> I definitely pulled bits from it, but and again, if we do that episode just about women in Shakespeare's plays, I'll be able to speak more to that. So thank you all so much for joining us on episode two of Will's Words. We've had a great time making this so far, and we're really excited to continue it. We're not completely sure yet what our next episode will be, because we've got a couple different ideas brewing. And we're not sure exactly which one will come next. So stay tuned for that. Check out our first episode if you haven't. And also our larger company, Every Mother's Son's Productions, where we have released A Midsummer Night's Dream. And we will be releasing Twelfth Night and Macbeth. And a big thank you again to all our very talented actors who read for us today. Your readings really bring this podcast to life in a way that I am so grateful for. So thank you for being a part of it. And thank you, listener, for joining us, whether this was your first time listening, your second time listening, you're listening again, who knows? But however you got here, we're glad you came.